Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Emily Bernard at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Tennessee native Emily Bernard is intimately familiar with and endlessly fascinated by the complexities and paradoxes of growing up as a person of color in the American South. She captures her insights and takeaways in the much-anticipated essay anthology, Black is the Body, stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time, and mine. In an advanced review for the intertwining 12 essay collection, Publishers Weekly lauds the author's wisdom and compassion radiate throughout. While her struggles and themes will strike a chord with many, Bernard's life story is singular and her authorial voice fresh. She holds a PhD from Yale and is now on the faculty of a university in the whitest state of America. She is also the mother of two daughters adopted from Ethiopia. Prior to her memoir, Bernard penned significant scholarship on Harlem Renaissance luminaries Langston Hughes and Carl von Vechten, and co-authored Michelle Obama, The First Lady in Photographs in 2009. Her essays have appeared in a host of journals and anthologies, including The American Scholar and Best African American Essays. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Um, and thank you for that lovely introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this event. So I want to read a bit from my book, um, Black is the Body. And I want to make sure we leave enough time for discussion. The best thing I've heard so far in the six weeks of this book's life, the best thing I've heard has been that it's an invitation, several people have said. And that it was my hope and dream that the book would not sit outside of you, but rather become part of your lives and invite conversations, produce conversations, not just with you and this book, but hopefully with you and, and people that you love. So I'll just read a few from a few pieces. Um, and I want to begin with a trigger warning. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge a very special guest, my lovely uh, Lyft driver from this afternoon who took me out to, took me home from Baisley Park. It's here with his daughters, and we had such a great conversation. So thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you know what I'm going to talk about. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a survivor of a violent crime, and I'm going to start by talking about that. Beginnings. This book was conceived in a hospital. It was 2001, and I was recovering from surgery on my lower bowel. 
which had been damaged in a stabbing. A friend, a writer, came to visit me in the hospital and suggested not only that there was a story to be told about the violence I had survived, but also that my body itself was trying to tell me something, which was that it was time to face down the fear that had kept me from telling the story of the stabbing, as well as other stories I needed to tell. I began to write essays. The first one I published was Teaching the N-Word. Over the next few years, more essays followed, along with several attempts to write about the stabbing. I couldn't tell that story yet because I didn't know what it meant. It took me seven more years to understand that the experience of being at the wrong end of a hunting knife was only the situation, not the story itself. It was the stage, not the drama. In the situation and the story, the art of personal narrative, Vivian Gornick writes, the situation is a context or circumstance, sometimes the plot. The story is the emotional experience that preoccupies the writer, the insight, the wisdom, the thing one has come to say. The setting of scar tissue, which is the essay I eventually wrote about being stabbed, is my gut. The blood let flow by the knife is a trail I followed until I discovered the story, which is the mystery of storytelling itself and how hard it is to tell the whole truth. Each essay in this book is anchored in this mystery, in blood. They are also rooted in contradictions, primary among them being that the stabbing unleashed the storyteller in me. In more than one way, that bizarre act of violence set me free. But of course, the stabbing has been a source of misery as well as opportunity. For instance, I suffered from recurrent excruciating stomach pain for many years before another trip to the hospital revealed that I had developed adhesions in my bowel. The surgeon was able to untangle my intestines and scar tissue, but he warned me that the adhesions would return. There was nothing I could do to prevent or predict them. You're just unlucky, he said sympathetically. The pain, he assured me, would be random and severe. It did return, thundered again throughout my body and sent me back to the hospital where a third surgeon seated to the inherent mystery of the malady and confessed that medicine was more art than science. The gift of his honesty was, to me, as valuable as any solution to the problem would have been. Once I accepted the randomness of the situation in my bowel, life took on a new urgency, and so did the desire to understand it. I turned to art over science, story over solution. I found a voice. The book imagined in 2001 began to take shape in a need to know, to explore, to understand before it was too late. Insofar as a personal essay is at heart an attempt to grasp the mysteries of life, the form made sense to me on a visceral level. The need to understand was what engendered the stabbing in the first place. I met the knife head on. Something in me just needed to know. Each essay in this book was born in a struggle to find a language that would capture the totality of my experience as a woman, a black American, a teacher, writer, mother, wife, and daughter. I wanted to discover a new way of telling. I wanted to tell the truth about life as I have lived it. That desire evolved into this collection, 
which includes a story about adoption that is as pragmatic as it is romantic, a portrait of interracial marriage that is absent of hand-wringing, and a journey into the inward that includes as much humor as grief. These stories grew into, into an entire book meant to contribute something to the American racial drama besides the endearing narrative of black innocence and white guilt. That particular narrative is not false, of course, which accounts for its endurance, but there are other true stories to tell, stories steeped in defiance of popular assumptions about race, whose contours are shaped by unease with conventional discussions about race relations. These other true stories I needed to explore, but I was mainly driven by a need to engage in what Zornel Hurston calls the oldest human longing, self-revelation. The only way I knew how to do this was by letting the blood flow and following the trail of my own ambivalence. I was not stabbed because I was black, but I've always viewed the violence I survived as a metaphor for the violent encounter that has generally characterized American race relations. The man who stabbed me was white, but more meaningful to me than his skin was the look in his eyes, which were vacant of emotion. There was no connection between us, no common sphere, yet we were suddenly and irreparably bound by a knife, an attachment that cost us both, me, my wholeness, him, his freedom. Revisiting the wound has been a way of putting myself back together. The equation of writing and regeneration is fundamental in black American experience. So if race was not an essential factor in what brought me into contact with a hunting knife, I've certainly treated the wound with the salve that I inherited from people whose experiences of blackness shaped their lives as fully and poetically as it has shaped mine. I'm most interested in blackness as it's at its borders, where it meets whiteness, in fear and hope, in anguish and love, just as I am most drawn to the line between self and other, in family, friendship, romance, and other intimate relationships. Blackness is an art, not a science. It is a paradox, intangible and visceral, a situation and a story. It is a thread that connects these essays but its significance as an experience emerges sometimes randomly and unpredictably in life as I have lived it. It is inconsistent, continuously in flux, and yet also a constant condition that I carry in and on my body. It is a condition that encompasses beauty, misery, wonder, and opportunity. In its inherent contradictions, utter mysteries, and bottomlessness as a reservoir of narratives, Race is the story of my life, and therefore, black is the body of this book. I want to read a little bit from the titular essay, Black is the Body, um, which really began, or made me understand um, what this book was about, that, or that I was writing a book, and it concerns, not coincidentally, my daughters. Black history. My brown daughters became black when they were six years old. They were watching television one day in February, Black History Month. A commercial came on. It was more like a 30-second history lesson, a commemoration of a pilot, a poet, or a politician, a first black, as a writer I know calls them, them being the racial pioneers, the inaugural Negroes, 
the foremost African-Americans to break through racial barriers in their chosen fields. By breakthrough, I mean, of course, secure the regard of white people. See, we're black, Julia said to Isabella. No, we're brown, Isabella responded. Yeah, but they call it black, Julia explained. <laughs> Despite my efforts to shield them, my doubters had somehow gotten wise to the absurd and illogical nature of American racial identity. Blackness, Julia had figured out, had nothing to do with actual skin color. Blackness, she had come to understand, was an external identity, external to her anyway. Race was something other people identified, something they said but not necessarily saw. Blackness, she had intuited, was a social category, not a color but a condition. And like it or not, it was time she was informing her sister to get with the proverbial program. In spite of me, but also because of me, my brown daughters were becoming black. My heart sank. It was not blackness per se that caused my heart to sink. I enjoy being black. But it took me a long time to get here, to this place of racial pleasure. My earliest experiences of blackness were defined by an unpleasant and uncomfortable hypervigilance. Being black meant that you had to be constantly aware that you could never really be at ease. Early on, I got wise to the fact that being black in a white place meant that the world was not a safe place, not for you. In my family, race was not a construction or a theory or an outdated consequence of history, but the active living foundation of our reality. Race determined the contours of every choice we made. Every mundane public act we performed was a project with a name. When we moved into our house, it was called integration. When my older brother and I entered the public school system, it was called desegregation. The split between black and white was not metaphorical. Railroad tracks divided black and white Nashville. On the white side of town, South Nashville, we played a role in a grand project of enormous proportions. We lived in South Nashville, but in North Nashville, we could be black in a way that was not possible in other parts of the city. In North Nashville, no one white was watching. We could relax. We were free. North Nashville was where my father practiced medicine and where we attended Fisk University events, my parents' alma mater, and one of this country's oldest historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. North Nashville was where we attended church in a small chapel that was established for the faculty and students of Meharry Medical College, from which both of my parents received their graduate degrees. Among the par parishioners in that chapel were men and women I called aunt and uncle, even though we had no biological relationship. We shared something bigger and more profound than blood, history. Inside the church, we celebrated our belief in God and a common pride in how we all made it over and broke through. We were a community, a black community, built in spite and because of racism. Because if it had not been for white supremacy, schools like Fisk and Meharry might never have existed. But my daughters were not born under the shadow of this history. They are black by ideology and affinity, but not by blood. When they were 12 months old, they assumed dual citizenship in both America and African America. Once when we were out of town visiting John's extended family, I told them the Black History Month story. I should clarify my husband is white. 
I could see that the story unsettled them. I tried to explain my reasons for having wanted to protect my daughters from the language of race, but my explanations seemed only to make them more impatient. Don't you want them to know their history? John's cousin asked. I knew what she meant. She meant American slavery, segregation, and the civil rights movement. Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and Rosa Parks, Martin, Malcolm, and other first blacks. February stories, which as American stories, belong to her, this white American woman, more than they do my daughters. I'm an African who lives in America, Isabella explained one day. She was recounting a conversation she had with a third grade classmate. The African children's choir had come to Burlington and the class had taken a field trip to see them perform. Later that day, Isabella's classmate, in an attempt to identify the differences she perceived between Isabella and the children on stage, had referred to Isabella as an African-American. Isabella corrected her. While the law may state that I am an American, I am African. When I came to this country, she continued, astonishment made it difficult for me to continue paying attention. That my daughter had such a fine sense of her place in the world I had not known. Her implicit assessment of my role as essentially a porter in the stage of her life journey felt wholly appropriate. My daughters and I flipped through picture books of 12th century Ethiopian underground churches carved out of rock. I showed them websites that feature both centuries-old drawings and modern photo photographs of Ethiopian kings and queens. Yours is the only African country to fight off the colonizer. I remind them often. Every mother think her thinks her daughters look like angels, but my daughters do resemble the doe-eyed, haloed brown cherubs that dominate Ethiopian Orthodox Christian iconography. Why did white people make black people slaves? Isabella asked one February afternoon. There's been slavery all over the world, I told her, even in Ethiopia. I'm proud that my daughters were born in a world where not only slaves, but also angels and aristocrats look just like them. Okay, so I saw my hairdresser before I started this leg of my journey. <laughs> and so many women, we understand how many stories are contained on the top of our heads. Um, and you know, we were talking about as we are growing, my daughters are growing up, going through the hair journeys I went through, you know, the changing same, Mary Baraka talks about, you know, there's so many things, the world is so different for them. Uh, than it was for me when I was growing up. And that's one reason why I wanted to explore that and understand that in this book. But this, the hair journey that they are now in the middle of um, so resembles my own that I, I needed to work that out on paper so I wrote an essay called Her Glory. So I'm gonna read a bit of that. Isabella asked me if she can get her hair straightened or flattened, as she calls it. When curiosity outdistances my good judgment, I comply in order to maximize the potential for drama inherent in the occasion, we schedule the flattening a few days before her birthday. Julia agrees to accompany Isabella for moral support, and also because Tamara, her hairdresser, always has popsicles in her freezer. Three hours after I drop the girls off, I receive a summons to retrieve them. The warm, thick smells of coconut and shea butter greet me as I enter the apartment. Julia and Tamara's son, lean into each other on a black leather couch, 
Transfixed by the television, Isabella sits on a stool with her back to me while Tamara stands in front of her, tidying the hair on either side of Isabella's face. I walk slowly around my daughter's head. Crystal Gale and Cousin It come to mind. <laughs> Isabella's hair is long and smooth and shines a glossy blue-black, like Veronica, Veronica's hair in the Archie comics. My little girl is gone. In her place has emerged the head of celebrities and freaks and cartoon characters. Tamara keeps a small black comb tucked into her crossed arms and watches me circle the stranger on the stool. Isabella ignores me as I examine her head from every angle. Along with the other kids, she is absorbed in The Cosby Show, an episode in which Cliff puts together a funeral for Rudy's dead goldfish. Isabella's hair is in a goldfish. It is a glass catfish, an Aranakala firefish, a sunshine peacock. Like any exotic pet, it will need careful tending. Specifically, Tamara tells me, it will have to be wrapped into a beehive, which should then be covered by a silk scarf before bed. She demonstrates the steps a few times and then hands me the pet. She tries to coach me through it, but I can't maintain control over the straight, slippery mass. That's not bad, Tamara reassures me as I transform her sweeping crown of a beehive into a loosely bound radish. Just do the best you can, she says. It starts to rain. Julie and I lift my jacket like a canopy and run, run alongside Isabella to the car. Once we are safely inside, the three of us examine our new pet, relieved to see that it is still snugly and silkily affixed to Isabella's head. We congratulate each other on a job well done. But then I remember that it is supposed to rain the next day, which will be accompanied by humidity, which will lead to sweating. I have fulfilled Isabella's greatest wish, but it comes with the attendant cost of girlhood, black girlhood to be precise. If we keep it flattened, she will come to worry over weather reports and view the elements as enemies. What a mistake, I think, as I glance at her extraordinary head in the rearview mirror. My daughters were nearly bald when we first met them. In northern Ethiopia, it is customary to keep the heads of girl babies shorn during the first years of their lives in the hopes that regular clippings will ensure long hair in the future. My husband and I loved our daughters' bald heads, especially the way they made their eyes seem even bigger than they actually were. For the first two years of their lives, I kept their hair closely cut to their scalps. Around that time, however, a nagging thought began to take root and a sentiment I had grown up hearing all my life, girls should have long hair. I started to sense judgment beneath the, beneath the questions of people who asked why I kept the girl's hair so short. As dazzling as I found my bald-headed babies and as much as I resented the straitjacket of conventional beauty standards, particularly when it comes to black girls, the thought, once rooted, bloomed quickly. Isabella did not object when I embarked upon the project of growing her hair. Now, after 10 years, her hair has been my longest lasting hobby since I gave up collect collecting stamps in high school. Her hair is my garden, and I have pruned and weeded her head as ardently as my mother used to tend to her flowers and plants. It's gone through many phases. The first, a short, fluffy afro, became untenable as tangles began to develop just as quickly as her hair grew. I thought short braids would keep her hair neat and orderly, but even after several YouTube attempts, 
I could only manage to produce lumpy, uneven knots. I found a young woman with swift, nimble, finger, nimble fingers who told me the extensions would help Isabella's hair grow faster. Even though I suspected this was only a myth, I consented. I figured she knew what she was doing. The extension phase didn't last long. The time and expense became a nuisance, and I was eager to take over the principal role in the saga of Isabella's hair care. After a brief stint as a feathery ball on top of her head, her hair became long enough for box braids, which require the hair to be divided into box-like sections and braided. The box braid stage was my favorite. I got so skilled at parting that her entire head resembled a map of small Midwestern states. <laughs> As I combed her hair, I studied its range of textures. Some strands felt like tumbleweeds and others felt like corn silk. I came to know the landscape of her scalp with its mysterious valleys, bumps, and dents more intimately than I know my own. After a long week of teaching, the braiding was private and meditative. Once we had negotiated the time, mid-afternoon was ideal, place, the living room, and the appropriate distraction, television, I enjoyed gathering the instruments and potions necessary to bring her tired, fraying braids back to life. I took as much pride in watching my own braiding skills develop as I did in my daughter's growing mane. Unlike teaching, braiding was labor that had tangible results, and labor it was. I complained proudly about the way my back ached after long hours of bending over Isabella's head. When I referred to them as our braids, she didn't correct me. The rhythm of braiding was calming until it wasn't. No matter how gently I tried to perform the task, there was always, eventually, screaming. After the screaming, there was whining, because no matter how early I started, I found myself constantly racing against bedtime. If we were lucky, the Discovery Channel delivered her favorite narcotic, Animal Planet. Isabella would sit with her hands folded in her lap, absorbed, absorbed in displays of human beings being mauled by alligators. <laughs> These are among my happiest memories. The small, still folded brown hands, the measurable feeling of triumph after calming dry, angry knots into shiny, peace-loving strands, while the accompanying music to the Maneaters documentary series played in the background. I cherished the alone time with Isabella, who at that point in her life considered it her job to keep track of my growing list of maternal failings. But she always approved of my braiding. I would wait excitedly for her regal nod after she studied her fresh braids in the mirror from every possible angle. Eventually, we switched from box braids to cornrows. It was then that Ta Tamara entered our lives. I said I was relieved to have my evenings back, but privately, I grieved. My hands felt useless, the evenings barren. I busied myself with laundry while I replayed my greatest untangling hits in my mind, like the knot that brought me tears to my eyes before I conquered it after an hour of microsurgical separation. The road to perfect cornrows was painful. Isabella called them hurting braids. They involved more tugging and tightening than box braids. Don't cry, Tamara would command as she pulled her comb through Isabella's hair and braided away. Having worked on the heads of many children, Tamara was unmoved by Isabella's discomfort. But I had to turn away when I saw my daughter scrunch her tiny features and make miniature fists, determined not to cry, even while fat tears rolled down her cheeks anyway. But as hard as it was to watch, 
I never once told Tamara to stop. I attended only the first session of the Hurting Braids. With every tug of Tamara's comb, Isabella took my hand and squeezed my fingers until I imagined I could hear bones cracking. I embraced the pain. I deserved it. After tiring of the silent drama going on between Isabella and me, Tamara forbade me to hang around during appointments. The only time John accompanied Isabella to Tamara's, Isabella insisted that he stay with her. She had her father, a former hockey player, arrange his big body on the floor at her feet and hold her tiny hand for three hours while Tamara wrestled with her hair. John came home shaken. Does a, con does a Geneva Convention know about this, he asked. <laughs> One of the many witticisms my husband is good for, and he appears a lot in this book, to my great gratitude. Okay, so I want to finish by just reading a little bit um, from the epilogue of the book, which, you know, I think, like many things in life, you know, it was sort of, I spent years on this book. It started, as I said, the first essay I wrote, you know, 14 years ago. But the epilogue really came to me as a gift, um, and I'll, I'll explain now why. It's called My Turn. A few years after my mother died, I discovered a cache of papers she left in my childhood bedroom closet. She buried them in an act of elegant and amusing symbolism under a pile of my father's long-forgotten wrinkled shirts. The papers consisted mainly of poems, drafts and drafts of them, but there were a few essays. I hadn't known she wrote essays. One of them is an autobiographical narrative about her life as a child in the Jim Crow South. It's called My Turn. When my mother was a child, she often accompanied her beloved grandmother, Mama Tempe, to a local grocery store. In order to get to the store, they had to walk past rental houses owned by a lumber company. One day, some white boys threw rocks at the two of them. A pleasant stroll turned into a nightmare, my mother wrote. Mama Tempe, who practiced the kind of black stoicism that has served as a guiding principle for African Americans since the inception of African presence in this country, walked on without evincing any emotion while the white boys jeered and pelted them with stones. When my mother asked Mama Tempe why they were being treated that way, her grandmother told her that the boys didn't know any better and should be pitied instead of hated. My mother idolized Mama Tempe. She accepted her grandmother's reasoning and as an adult went on to practice the same kind of forbearance that made Mama Tempe the embodiment of strength and moral fortitude in the poetry my mother wrote. With the rock still wounded, she wrestled with the wounds in my turn. Her grandmother's keen analysis of the nature of racism, that it was a consequence of ignorance, did not stem the flow of blood that ran down her leg. After reading the story, I knelt on the floor, my heart racing. I reached the final lines and then started all over again. I was looking frantically for something. What was it? I didn't know, but I kept scanning the lines over and over, my throat tight and my breath short. There was something I needed that I didn't see. What is it? I kept asking myself, as I read the paragraphs again and again, and then searched through her other papers, looking and looking. For what? Some words to correct the abomination of the rocks and my mother's bloody leg. And then I realized that what I was looking for 
was the salve, an answer, the end. For while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it must always be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. It's the only light we've got in all this darkness, James Baldwin explains. It took me a while. It took the journey of this entire book, but I realized that there was a lesson, which was in every scar there is a story. The salve is a telling itself. This book, I feel like the book is really rooted in um, an attempt to understand what it means to be a person who has inherited stories. I did a great podcast to, to today with a fantastic woman, um, and we were talking about epigenetics. You know, the study that, that has been done by scientists about the ways that, I guess, the study that I know about Holocaust survivors and uh, descendants, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who evince the symptoms of PTSD because they have inherited in their bodies and really in the stories that they have somehow incorporated into their selves, that trauma. And there have been studies being done about inher the inheritance, racism, the way that it is inherited. You know, the stories we carry. So that was something that was, that's, I, I'm always thinking about. You know, as, as I get older, I think about so many stories I tell about who I am and how I came to be, and so many of them involve my parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. I didn't even know them, <laughs> but their stories somehow I've chosen. You know, you choose them to uh, compose my own story. And now my children get older and I do wonder, you know, what stories they're going to tell about their lives that involve me that they had nothing to do with. Um, I, my, in my office, I have a picture of my husband and I when we first got engaged. And when my daughter was around the same time when she was talking about herself as an African in America, she comes to my office, Isabella, uh, true to form, and she's talking to me about something going on with her day as an eight-year-old, and she takes a picture of herself from one side of the room and puts it in front of the picture of me and John. <laughs> it's like, it just was so natural to her, like, you got, doesn't, nothing exists before me. And it was just a beautiful, you know, it was just another thing that I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, she's decided that this marriage is meaningless without, you know, her existence. Um, it was a beautiful symbol. So this book was an attempt to really not only, I think, uh, you know, honor those, those stories that I have been told and, and kind of, because I think they belong to so many of us, you know, so many um, commonalities. And I will say that when I started this book, I thought of it so much as a woman's book. And I was truly humbled by the emails I have received from men. And some of them identify themselves. One man wrote me, I'm an old white man who's poor and lives in the South. But the stories that you told about your grandmother, those are my stories about my grandmother. And it's just such a pleasure you know, to find, again, this common language, um, which is what I was really hoping for in doing this book. You know, my own dissatisfaction with the way that we have seemed retreated to our corners you know, and, and we've already decided so much about each other. And we were talking today about this, right? About how we need to share our stories before we decide what our, each of our stories were. It was a beautiful conversation, as I said. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Emily Bernard and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage, 
and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question tonight comes from an audience member inquiring about the events that led Bernard to write this book. Well, you know, it took me a long time to write this story. You know, I think of myself, I'll start of, of an, as an essayist, and we, we, we talked about the book as my editor decided, a memoir of sorts, and that was, uh, not, not, I wouldn't say cynical, but a very deliberate, market-conscious, you know, decision, because I was told, you know, you know, essays don't sell is the wisdom, unless you're Joan Didion or Annie Dillard, you know, so um, <laughs> that's what I heard all along, right? Uh, I don't know what that means, but that's what, so um, th that was the, the kind of the idea, but, but I am an essayist, you know, and the essayist that I, uh, the, the writers that I learn from are, are people who wrote essays, and you know, largely women who wrote essays. I like the essay form because it demands an economy and restraint. You know, you have to pack a lot into a metaphor, and you think, I think a lot about shape in these essays. And before I get to your very good question, I want to talk about the essay I wrote, Teaching the N-Word, which I wrote because I, it was an act of defiance. You know, we have so many, there's so many lectures out there about the, about the word. And, you know, there's a simple answer. Don't say it. You know, the word is steeped and drenched in racism. It is an expression of racism. It is a container of, of rhetorical violence. And yet, over and over again, you know, someone says it, and then they have to apologize, and then they may or may not lose their career, and then we begin again. So it feels like these lectures or these, you know, kind of prescriptions are just pointless. You know, I don't know, I'm just tired of it. But I also, as I tell my students all the time, you can say whatever you want, but as my grandmother used to say, don't write a check with your mouth that you're behind can't cash. So there are consequences to what we say, in other words. So, but then that essay, I wanted to tell it episodically because I, I didn't want to, again, you know, give another dry lecture that nobody, you know, I wanted to tell it in a way that was porous so that, you know, it, and it travels so that, you know, you as readers, and particularly generationally, I think as young people, there's so many ways of thinking about it. You know, it is in the music and we do, you know, it's part of our culture. It's a, you know, it's, 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 it's alive. So when it came to um, this, this, this essay about, about the, the uh, stabbing, I, uh, I didn't want to tell it in a way that was really melodramatic, because it is already really dramatic. So the challenge for me was to tell it in a way that was um, to balance the drama with restraint, because uh, I felt that was a way to, to maintain my own integrity about it. You know, it's still my it's still my body, even though the story you know is of course belongs to the reader. So I decided that when I read that wonderful book by Vivian Gornick, who was one of my heroes as an essayist, she wrote a book, amazing book called Fierce Attachments, about her relationship with her mother that I, is a, I, just changed my life. Um, but I thought, well, the, what if I treated it that way? That treat, almost put in the, you know, deliberately decided that the incident itself was almost a background or a context and what I do in that essay, I decided, as I was trying to figure out, the question I had a lot in this book, too, was what are the stories that belong to ourselves and which stories belong to other people? You know, when we tell stories about our lives, they naturally lean over into the stories of other people. You know, if I asked you to tell a story about your day, if you just told me what you did, it would be very boring. You know, it would involve, naturally, conversations you had or 
things you heard. You know, my story will all, will all about to say, always involve our conversation. So, you know, what is that line? And as my daughters get older, because I write about, you know, I heard my brother saying, my sister writes about our family, you know, I, I'm all, all these, you know, I thought, well, you know, again, I'm very grateful that they allow me to do it, but, but it is something that I am always thinking about, always conscious of. So when I started the essay, I thought, well, if, I, if any story belongs to me, this happened to me, <laughs> so I can tell the story, but at the same time, of course, it does involve other stories. And I started to research to remember, and I saw how unreliable my memory was. And so, and you know, it's the thing we hear all the time, but to really see it, you know, I think this thing is literally imprinted. I mean, I can tell you that day, will, I will never forget it. But when I looked at the police records and I looked at hospital records, you know, the hospital had me in critical condition. I don't remember it that way. I, somebody was um, describing me. I, there's a, a little interview that came out on people.com, shameless plug, today with me. Um, and the, the editor described it as a mass stabbing. And I, I thought, oh, I guess it was. I mean, there were seven people. <laughs> but I never thought, of, you know, it's again, it's just the brain protects you, right, from this kind of thing, because it's not supposed to happen. But, um, and it's just hard to assimilate, you know, and even I find in memory, and it's also just how, you know, protective denial works that way. So the story then became about whose story is this? And that was actually the original title of this essay. There were police rec records, um, there were police officers who told the story in very one, you know, all caps I wrote about for some reason. And there was another, another police officer who wrote this beautiful narrative. I mean, I thought, this is a poet. You know, with his narrative about what happened that night that was full of, like, the streetlights and, you know, what it felt like. I thought, my goodness, this story really lives with this person. You know, he really literally ingested it in a way that I did. I mean, I was on a gurney, you know. The story obviously belongs to the six other people who were injured. Um, and the story belongs to um, the newspaper journalists who, of course, you know, it was a different era in 1994, but still looking for content, content, and the drama. You know, one thing that they did was, was uh, publish our birth, well, my, I had turned, uh, I think, 27 in the hospital. And so it was just a strange, it was just a strange detail, you know, too. And a couple came to the hospital and brought me chocolates in the hospital and said, it was, we just thought it was a shame, you know, strangers, that you had to spend your birthday in the hospital. And that was the moment I knew that they had published that information. So again, it just sort of belonged to different people, and it still does. When I meet people who were there, or I mean, it's a community, it was back in 94, these things weren't happening every day like they are now, you know, and available on YouTube. So it was a community event. It was a national event. Again, you know, and I always think, good, thank goodness he didn't have a gun, you know. But it wasn't something that happened every day. So people experienced this. And when I was doing research, you know, I, I called the police station and people remembered this, you know. Um, and one woman told me who answered the phone at the police station, she had told her daughter, you know, she had taken from what happened, which was completely random. But as we always do, you know, note, note to self, she told her daughter, you know, stay away from that coffee shop, you know, lessons that I tell my children now, you know, about if you see someone and they make you uncomfortable, move. You have nothing to prove. You know in your body, you know your instincts, you know. Um, so that was really what I was thinking about, that the story was really, I thought the compelling story, again, the universal story, because that's what I was trying to tell in this book. You know, I think as an essayist, the universal, from the particular to the universal, you know, so I use my personal stories to try to, again, make connections with readers. You know, it's, I think that's a difference in some ways, not always, so it's a broad brush, but between memoir, maybe, and essays, and that if the essay is not necessarily to instruct, it's trying to connect. You know, it's trying to make a connection. 
Um, and if it doesn't tell a universal story, then it's not useful. And I think a lot about utility as I'm writing. So then, you know, um, so the, the story of the stabbing is, is, a, is a dramatic story, and um, it's a story actually I was kind of reluctant to tell, and in some ways it just felt like too easy. I was sitting with another writer, friend, and hero of mine, Ann Fadiman, who wrote a beautiful book called When the Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down. You may remember that. So we're sitting in, a, in, in co coffee, in another, uh, another coffee. I was, it was stabbed in coffee, and because of me and my twisted humor, or, I was sitting there, oh, Ann, I was stabbed in a coffee shop. And she said, oh my god. Have you written about this? And I said, oh, no. She goes, well, you know, not everybody gets stabbed. You know, it's actually a good story. But as I said, I just felt like, oh, it's just a little too easy, you know? And she said, no, there's actually a story to tell that, you know, so that's what I was, uh, that's how I was able to tell it, um, because I thought there's, a, there's something useful here for a reader who hasn't been stabbed. I mean, again, I mean, I've heard from people who've suffered trauma and have told me that, you know, they, they connected with it because of the way your brain tricks you and you just, you know, you think you remember things and you don't remember them. Um, so, so it's been useful in that way, but I'd like to think in a larger way, it, it hopefully invites the reader in because it asks those questions, you know, like what, what are our stories and how do we remember things? And maybe it doesn't make them untrue, even if it's, they're slightly false. Maybe we're always shaping the truth, you know. Um, in the podcast we're talking, Toni Morrison says, memory is always an act of invention. You know, they're not separate. Um, so that, those are the things that were fascinating me as I was telling this, to me, very ordinary story about this thing that happened to me. Um, that is just so much part of my life and literally part of my body, I don't think about it anymore. I was more interested in those other questions. This audience member asks about the story of Emily Bernard's children and their journey from Ethiopia. Yeah, I have a couple of essays in there. I thought it might be a point of interest. I, I wrote a lot of this um, book, you know, just separate essays. Um, and I was learning to, to write on the job. You know, I didn't go to writing school, so I was just, you know, doing, as I said, what felt naturally, but I didn't really know how to do it, you know? It's like maybe somebody who just is drawn to the kitchen and you want to learn to cook, and you, you can read a recipe, but you just have to feel your way to it. Um, but then I, when I had written an essay called Mother on Earth, um, I was talking to you today, to, to about today, um, about adopting my children, and as I read to you from beginnings, I wanted deliberately to write an essay about adoption that wasn't full of, wasn't full of, again, melodrama. I had a friend uh, who was suffering emotionally. She had, a, she adopted a child, and then she had a biological child. And the child, her daughter, her first daughter, was starting to ask questions about her birth parents. And this was, you know, causing my friend this tremendous distress, which I just was finding really tiresome, frankly. And I thought, of course she's asking about her birth mother. That's fantastic. You know, and this is just, what did you, we signed up for this, you know? Um, and I, I was trying to urge her very gently, like, you know, don't cry about it. You know, you need to, this is her story now. And her story, she has two mothers, so help her celebrate that and not see it as, you know, you can help shape for our children, right? I mean, insofar as we can, then they ultimately make decisions themselves and go through different phases. But I was really bothered by, it felt to me a choice to, I thought you could make another choice. Um, and so I wanted to write an essay that was a very sober and pragmatic look at this, which is how, you know, with my daughters, uh, we've talked about adoption ever since they could understand anything. 
and I've certainly tried to shape it as this wonderful adventure that we have embarked upon as a family. Um, and they will have their own part of it. I hope to be part of it. Um, but you know, I always inviting that. You know, um, doesn't mean it's not not complex for me too. I'm just learning on the job myself. But I thought this was a story I wanted kids to have. You know, from a parent, because again, it feels like there's a single narrative out there about adoption that's, you know, uh, just sort of saturated in, in poverty, you know, sense of lack. And I wanted to tell a story about abundance, you know, to give, to give for, for kids, to say, here's another way of looking at it. But then I said, okay, I need to get into the logistics here about what happened. So I wrote an essay, the essay in here, it's called Motherland. And uh, so it was a pretty um, dramatic story. And, and that story I thought a lot about restraint too, because you know, stories about international travel are always dramatic. And stories about adoption are, are dramatic. So I thought the job here is to practice restraint. Um, so I just sort of told what happened. And my husband and I, you know, we wanted to adopt it just sort of, and I didn't tell, get to tell the story. I had another essay that didn't end up in the book where when I decided to adopt, it was wonderful. My mother was, collect, kept everything, you know, and so I told her, I said, you know, we made this decision, I'm really excited. And we decided about Ethiopia because there is a substantial population of kids who were born in Ethiopia in Vermont. It started with one woman who I describe her at some length um, in the essay. It was a, a complex figure in the whole uh, process. I mean, in the end, she's why we have I Am a Mother. But she wasn't the most scrupulous person, so there's a whole story there. But she had a friend who was Eritrean, um, and you know the the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea left a lot of kids without families, and so this woman said, um, "I want to help," and her friend said, "Well, I've I've had children who need homes," and she was she approached a couple of adoption agencies. She said, "Well, these white families in Vermont are not going to want." these black kids. So she put an ad in the paper, and the next day she had like 100 phone calls, you know? Um, and so that's the kind of the story about this woman. Um, and that's how we found it. When I decided I wanted to adopt, I told a couple of friends, and boom, boom, boom. Um, I got hooked up with some families, and we met this woman. And um, it was a pretty big deal. You know, we saw these babies um, come up on our screens, and I hadn't planned on twins. I, don't, I guess no mother, biological advice, <laughs> banks on that. But um, you know, it was it. When I saw them, a friend of mine said, well, that's it. She said something a little, with a little more spice that I have in the book. <laughs> but, she, but that was done. I mean, as soon as I saw the pictures, well, that, there you go. You know how it goes. And uh, so we made the journey, and it took a, a month. It took a month. We had planned to just stay for a couple weeks, but it became this bureaucratic nightmare as often these things work out. And I still, it just was, a, in the end, it was a stroke of luck. I guess like with anything, you know, and, and frankly, anything that happens, it's sort of about love. You know, it just was magic. And, and we, we brought them home on their first birthday. And, you know, I tell you, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is evil. But thank goodness for Facebook because their biological uh, siblings found me. You know, and like the world is wired, you know, and so now I have this great relationship with uh, their siblings and the girls are aunts and, you know, it's a, it's a great story they have in front of them. Uh, they're a little young, I think, to grasp all of the layers, 
but it's wonderful. You know, their, their sister that, that carried Julia on her back for, you know, we were at the family compound, which is like, you know, another century. So I walked with the sister and you know, we kept smiling at each other. And then she had to give her sister up, you know. And I thought about her every day, you know, since that. And then here she is, you know. And so we, on the phone, we just record little voice memos. All, all we can basically say to each other is, I love you, I love you, I love you. But it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, uh, but that's an interesting, because you know, now the girls, they're older and that story really, I hope they will tell it in some form and certainly enjoy it. But now that story really is theirs, you know. Um, but the story about how we came to be a family is something we share. And, um, you know, I, I, I just want to say about writing my daughters, um, they have also been very generous. And when asked about being written about, they will say, oh, we're used to it. You know, she's been doing this forever. Um, but we, we read together every bit of the book, you know, um, and we made negotiations about things that couldn't be in there. It would embarrass them and um, things that they were okay with them. But they were, they were really proud so far of the story of our family, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. This question is if Emily Bernard has experienced peace and forgiving for her attacker through her writing process. Yes. Absolutely. In short, I mean, I came to the, I would say, you know, I, processing it, writing is a way of processing for me and a way of finding out how I feel about something. Um, and when I came to the end of that essay, I knew that I was at the end. Um, and it was sort of, I put everything in it. All of the anger, all of the confusion, all of the bizarre humor, you know, sometimes it's just crazy. I mean, there's one scene when I'm sitting with the EMT and I just, we're laughing, it's so crazy what happened. I mean, just, how did this happen, you know? Um, but yes, I think, um, I think what I learned most of all is we were saying, I learned to work with the wound. I learned to work with the wound. I gave a reading and a woman said, you know, that her philosophy was, things happen to us and they happen for us, I think she said. And I think that's how I've approached it. I mean, you and I share a faith. Um, and I think I've approached it in that way. And ultimately, as I say in the essay, you know, this man was sick. You know, he, I looked into his eyes. There was nobody home. He had been deinstitutionalized de too early. And, you know, I've, people have asked me, like, why aren't you, you know, more angry about this? But it's just, he was sick, and he apologized. I mean, you know, when he got better, aren't they supposed to count for something? I mean, I thought they were, you know? And he said, if I had been on my medication, and if I had had the proper medication, I never would have done this. It makes a difference that everybody survived. And even though I have this recurrent pain, again, it, it's part of me. It's part of me. And you have to love all of you. <laughs> um, so. I, it's a process of managing. It's a lifetime process of managing that. We can shake our fists at the world right for so long, and then we can either lie down and die or decide that we're gonna live. And I decided to live, and I decided to live here. You know, this is, this is how I live, and this is how I survive. 
But as I said, and I said we talked about it earlier, it certainly creates a nuisance. You, things fall into place when you are faced with something like this. And right before I turned the book in, um, so it was happening every seven years, these adhesions, like it felt very biblical. <laughs> um, and I passed the seven year mark and I thought, okay, we're done with this. And I'd written the essay and I was like, the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> and then I, six weeks later, I was back in the hospital. And again, I had to contend with this as a real feature of my life. And a reminder of how little control we have as human beings you know, over the things that happen to us. Um, and again, a doctor came in and recited, you did nothing to bring this on, there's nothing we can do to prevent it, and it will come back. Um, and I did have a moment of, I said to one of my surgeons, I said, I just don't want this man to have killed me. And she said, well, the reason you're saying that is this began in a trauma, and that's the language of trauma. It was very helpful. You know, she was just this very uh, serious person, but she had this great insight and I, that I needed to hear. But, um, you know, my whole family is living with it, right? We had to, we live with this. It's, it was horrible for my children. But um, to see me again in the hospital, why does this keep happening to my mother? Uh, so, but it's something I have to live with. And it has taught me a measure of strength. And as you say, a measure of compassion. I learned very quickly what it's like to be old. Because, you know, you come out of the hospital, I could barely, and the world is, people are so impatient, and you're rushing by, and I couldn't walk well. And I thought, well, now I'm not going to be one of those people. You know, when I get my... Uh, strength back, I'm going to know now. I know, I've walked in these shoes, what it's like to be living in a body that is not doing what you want. So, you know, th those are the lessons, right? And, and, you know, if we're living, can't we just take these lessons? Because I, I want to live, right? And living, as you say, you know, it is forgiveness, right? Ultimately, I won't, I don't want to die with anger. And I think this book as a whole um, is, is a, an attempt to do that an attempt to find peace um, within, again, the racial drama, uh, as well as with the, my personal story of, of, uh, of that scars, you know, that we carry, we all carry them. This audience member asks if Bernard sees her daughters facing racial trauma in their lives. Yes, in short. If only because it's out there in the world. I don't know if, if you remember, that, of course, as a parent of black children, we are a parent of children of color. You know, we're, I think we're always watching and we're always paying attention. And there was a, an incident that happened maybe a year ago. A black child, a boy, was um, is a suburb outside of Detroit. And he had gotten lost in his own neighborhood. He got off at the wrong bus stop or something. And he knocked on a stranger's door, somebody in his neighborhood. And a white woman answered the door and she screamed at a little boy. And the father grabbed a gun and shot at the boy. And he luckily, you know, escaped. And I think about how, bar, how low the bar is now, that, you know, I just was relieved that he's alive. Um, my daughter, a few months later, we just had just moved into our a new house in the new neighborhood, which is, you know, 10 minutes away, but it was a new neighborhood. And our dog, our new dog, who was just very running away all the time, he wanted to know the world, despite our efforts, and he'd gotten out of the house, and I was a good 20 minutes away at the library, and I got a call from a stranger saying, I have your dog, but I, I have to go back to work. Can somebody come get the dog? My daughter was at home, and I called a neighbor, and I said, okay, she's, a neighbor's gonna meet you, but you have to go now to get the dog. She didn't then have a phone, 
So as soon as we hung up, I thought, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'd forgotten to tell her to get the leash. And we were new to dog raising. So I sat there waiting, and I get a call from a, a woman who says, she, she, was, she was not a mother, actually, but she knew. She said, I have Julia. Everything is OK. And I have Sammy. Do you want to talk to Julia? And Julia got on the phone, and she was, I could tell she was furious at me because I'm her mother, and so everything is my fault. Um, so <laughs> she was mad. And she came back, and you know, she had leaves her. I mean, she was, Sammy had run away from her again, and, and so she had knocked on a stranger's door. She told me she was looking for an older person. So she was looking for an older person, which I thought was great. Um, so she was looking for somehow evidence of, of older people. And she said, and so I sat her down. And I told her what happened in Detroit. And she said, did it happen in Vermont? And I said, no, not yet. But I didn't say not yet. I said, I can't promise that it won't. And it's that, I think the challenge, you know, as parents of children of color, and maybe, maybe parents just who care about this stuff, you know, we want our children to know the world is a good place, but we need them to also know about this other thing uh, and their vulnerabilities. So it's an ongoing struggle I have. Um, and they're aware of it. You know, we live in a little bubble in Vermont, um, and the fact that we are few means that we're very visible, which means I get reports on them all the time what they're doing. You know, I saw your children at so-and-so, and they were you know, cutting up. Um, or they weren't wearing their coats, I noticed. So that's actually quite helpful, <laughs> being hyper-visible in, in a place where people are kind and we're known. Um, but um, but, they, but, they, but there's a cost to that, too, you know, that they feel that all the time. Um, and thankfully, because of this book, I've had you know, I have neighbors now who understand this now in a different way because they've read these stories and they, you know, neighbor, my next door neighbors, you know, I had no idea that you were living with this, you know, so I'm glad for that. But, um, you know, I mean, of course we have to believe that, that ch in change. And I do believe, I you know, see generations of young people who are out there and who are making change in their daily lives. You know, um, my, I heard my daughter, Julia, saying to her best friend is, is in the book, he's Patrick, his white boy, and he was, she was talking to him and his, his friend, and she said, you two are the embodiment of white privilege. I thought, oh my goodness, this kid has learned something, and she's not afraid to use her voice. So, you know, I feel like I'm raising warriors, you know, and they know I've, I'm, I'm here um, to, to, to raise the village, if, it, if the village must be raised, but they also have learned to advocate for themselves and speak up for themselves, and that's what, you know, all we can do, I think, in this world, you know, have our kids be, be agents of change and justice and fairness and have them believe in that, particularly in this political moment. You know, we have to do a double time. Tell them it's your job now to make sure that the world is a just place. So I guess in short, to my despair and I guess to despair of a lot of us, you know, we watch it happen all the time. I think we do our kids a disservice by not, you know, letting them know. But how, James Baldwin says we can't tell the children there's no hope, you know, regardless of what we feel. But I also tell my children and my students, you know, hope is a practice. You know, we, we can't just be satisfied. And we do it every day. You know, some of us take to the streets and some of us just need to correct people um, when they say those things. Um, and we need to be brave in that way, which can be really hard. So 
they are part of this world that we live in. And, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to give them the best tools I know I have at my disposal. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Emily Bernard decided what stories of her life to incorporate into the book and which ones to leave out. At some point, the book kind of tells you. You know, and I did think about this as a body, you know? And so there's a heart, and there's a this, and there's a that. Um, and so when that became the deeper story, you know, about this body, then it was like I could see what didn't work. Um, when I understood that the, with the question I was pursuing, which was, again, how to be a good keeper of stories and what stories to pass on to my children and how to, you know, really be a vessel in some ways of history, but also what, you know, what stories to pass on, which stories should not be passed. Thinking about that, stories having healing power, um, then I knew what went in. And there were some, you know, some practical decisions, you know. Um, there were stories that didn't work. There were stories that I just that couldn't make them work. And I wanted to go, I wanted to have different moods. You know, I wanted it you know, to be like when you listen to a good CD and it's like, you can this and that. I wanted it to kind of feel like that. So you could kind of dip in and laugh sometimes and you could also then experience something else. So I was going for that. Going for something coherent, but something whole. And so it just, when I kept that in mind, so maybe it wasn't until I was maybe three quarters of the way just through the writing that I thought, okay, so now I'm thinking about the shape of this whole thing. So I know that sounds a little vague, but it really was feeling my way through it like that. Okay, thank you. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library Roseville event with Emily Bernard. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Don Winslow at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Internationally renowned thriller novelist Don Winslow is the mind behind the Godfather trilogy of our time. His best-selling, The Power of the Dog trilogy, centered around the U.S. government's decades-long war on drugs and concluded this year with The Border. It debuted in February. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.